You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com gps. That's netsuite.com gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, an exclusive interview with the foreign minister of Iran, Javed Zarif, on the state of the nuclear deal, relations between his country and the United States, and the re-election of Iran's President Rouhani. Will the country's hardline soften further? Also, the man behind the Russia story that is rocking the news. What Russia wanted from Donald Trump Jr. was to end the so-called Magnitsky sanctions. What are those and why does Putin care about them? Bill Browder launched a worldwide campaign to slap those sanctions on Russians. He will make sense of it all. Finally, from President Trump to President Washington, our two nations are forever joined together by the spirit of revolution. America's special connection to Bastille Day. But first, here's my take. The latest revelations about Russia and Donald Trump's campaign are useful because they might help unravel the puzzle that has always been at the center of the story, which is, why has Donald Trump had such a benign and favorable attitude towards Russia and Vladimir Putin. It is such an unusual position for Trump that it begs for some kind of explanation. Unlike on domestic policy, where Trump has wandered all over the political map, on foreign policy, he has held clear and consistent views for three decades. In 1987, in his first major statement on public policy, he took out an ad in several newspapers that began, For decades, Japan and other nations have been taking advantage of the United States. In the ad, he also excoriated Saudi Arabia, a country whose very existence is in the hands of the United States and other allies who won't help. This is Trump's worldview, and he has never wavered from it. He's added countries to the roster of rogues, most recently China and Mexico. On the former, he wrote in his presidential campaign book, There are people who wish I wouldn't refer to China as our enemy, but that's exactly what they are. Trump is what historian Walter Russell Mead calls a Jacksonian on foreign policy after Andrew Jackson, someone deeply skeptical and instinctively hostile toward other nations and their leaders, who believes in a fortress America that minds its own business and, if disturbed, bombs the shit out of its adversaries and then retreats back to its homeland. This was Trump's basic attitude towards the whole world, except for Russia. Ten years ago, when Russian money began pouring into the West, Trump began praising the country and its leader. Look at Putin, what he's doing with, I mean, you know, what's going on over there. He's doing a great job in rebuilding the image of Russia and also rebuilding Russia, period. Trump so admired Putin that he imagined that the two of them had met making some variation of that false claim at least five times in public. 
and downplaying any criticism of Putin. In all fairness to Putin, you're saying he killed people. I haven't seen that, he said in 2015. Have you been able to prove that? When confronted on this again earlier this year, he dismissed it, saying, A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? At a July 2016 news conference, Trump said, There's nothing I can think of that I'd rather do than have Russia friendly as opposed to the way they are right now. And his initial actions after launching his candidacy all seemed to follow up on this idea. He appointed as a top foreign policy advisor Michael Flynn, a man who had pronounced pro-Russian leanings and we now know had been paid by the Russian government. Paul Manafort, who was for a while the head of Trump's campaign, received millions of dollars from the pro-Russian party in Ukraine. During the Republican convention, there was a very unusual watering down of hawkish language on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And once elected, Trump chose as his secretary of state Rex Tillerson, a man who had been awarded one of Russia's highest honors for foreigners and who had a very close relationship with Putin. Finally, there are the repeated contacts between members of the Trump campaign and family with key Russian officials and nationals, which again appears to be unique to Russia. It's possible there are benign explanations for all this. Perhaps Donald Trump just admires Putin as a leader. Perhaps he has bought into his senior advisor Steve Bannon's worldview, in which Russia is not an ideological foe, but a cultural friend, a white Christian country battling swarthy Muslims. But perhaps there is some other explanation for this decade-long fawning over Russia and its leader. This is the puzzle, now at the heart of the Trump presidency, that Bob Mueller will undoubtedly solve. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Friday was the two-year anniversary of the Iran nuclear deal. July 14, 2015 was when Iran came to terms with the United States, China, France, Germany, Russia and the UK on limiting its nuclear program. It was a day that many thought would never be reached, though some naysayers would say it would never have been reached and that Iran is not in compliance. But President Trump is expected to certify tomorrow that Iran has done just that. Remember, this is the deal he threatened to rip up, calling it the worst deal ever. He said dismantling it was his number one priority. Joining me now exclusively is the foreign minister of Iran, Javed Zarif. Pleasure to have you on, sir. Good to be with you. So the, let me ask you about this issue of compliance with the deal. Um, four senators, including Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, wrote a letter in which they said Iran is not in compliance with the deal. And very briefly put, they argue you are still acquiring uh, nuclear ma materials. You have denied the uh, IAEA, the inspection body, uh, access to the Parchin uh, facility and you, that, that you are operating more centrifuges than allowed. What is your response? Well, when we negotiated the deal, we decided uh, to make the IAEA the only uh, accepted body to monitor uh, the implementation of the nuclear side of the deal. And the IAEA has verified, I believe, seven times now since uh, the implementation day that Iran has uh, implemented uh, the deal faithfully fully and completely. Unfortunately, we cannot make the same statement about the United States. The United States has failed to implement its part of the bargain. Specifically and that is, what? 
for instance, when uh, the White House made an announcement a couple of days ago that uh, President Trump used his presence in uh, Hamburg during the G20 meeting in order to dissuade leaders uh, other, from other countries to engage in business with Iran, that is a violation of not the spirit but of the letter of the JCPOA, of the nuclear deal. And uh, I believe the United States needs to bring itself into compliance with its part of the obligation under the deal. Iran has been complying. It has been verified by the IAEA. What about the German intelligence reports that say there is still acquisition taking place, a nuclear acquisition? Well, again, the IAEA is responsible body to monitor and verify, and it has verified that Iran is complying with the deal. Let me point out here that the deal does not prevent Iran from continuing with its peaceful nuclear program. We, uh, the deal is very clear. It recognizes Iran's right to engage in enrichment. It is uh, enrichment for peaceful purposes. And I believe it was the realization that uh, a knowledge that was, had been acquired by Iran domestically and through the work of our scientists could not be taken away from Iran. And the best way was to have it monitored. A lot of people wonder about this 10-year or 15-year period. And they say, this is just a pause. Once that period is over, Iran will begin a nuclear weapons program. Well, Iran has made it very clear in the deal, before the deal, that it does not have a weapons program. The IAEA again verified that the allegations about possible military dimensions of Iran's nuclear program were un unfounded. The IAEA decided to close that chapter. I think people want to uh, basically engage in scaremongering. Uh, Iran has a very clear track record. Iran was a victim of chemical weapons. Iran never used chemical weapons. Iran has had the capability, but decided not to go in the direction of producing weapons of mass destruction, because we believe that not only they are against our ideology, but also they do not augment our security. We believe that nuclear weapons would be a threat to our security rather than uh, an asset for our security. Let me ask you about Donald Trump's Middle East policy. He went to Saudi Arabia. Um, he met with uh, the, the Gulf states. Uh, and the focus of that meeting appears to have been to try to rally uh, a kind of anti-Iranian alliance that the Saudis have wanted to do, uh, particularly with regard to the, the war in Yemen, uh, but also more generally isolating Qatar, which is seen as being too friendly to Iran. What is your reaction to that? Well, all I can say is it's a misplaced and misguided policy. We know where the terrorists are coming from. We know those who uh, attacked uh, the World Trade Center uh, were citizens of rich countries in the region. And I can tell you that none of them came from Iran. None of the people who engaged in acts of terrorism uh, since 2001 uh, came from Iran. Most of them came from US allies. I believe the ideology that is being spread by, unfortunately, by our neighbors in Saudi Arabia throughout the world is responsible for hatred, for extremism, and for fanaticism that is bringing such a dark page of uh, people who have nothing to do with Islam uh, into, uh, the, into our region and even beyond our region. Look at ISIS, look at Nusra, look at Al-Qaeda, look at other terrorist organizations, all of them. None of them uh, have anything to do with Iran, all of them. Uh, receive not only their ideology, but their financial assistance, their weapons, their arms from others who call themselves U.S. allies.
We're going to have to talk a lot more with Javed Zarif. We're going to talk about more about Trump's Middle East policy, the wars in Syria, Yemen, uh, ask him about Iraq, all of that when we come back. And we are back with Iran's foreign minister, Javed Zarif. Um, there's so many hotspots in the Middle East. I don't know which one to start with, but let's talk about Syria. Iran is Syria's closest ally. You have uh, sent uh, militias in that have supported the Assad regime. The fundamental dilemma seems to be that there is a large part of Syria that will not accept an Assad government. There's still huge parts of the country that he does not control. But on the other hand, they do not have the strength to topple that government. What is the solution that allows the very large groups that simply seem unalterably opposed to the, the Assad government and the reality that the Assad government does control, you know, maybe 12 million people? Let me first of all say that our policy with regard to Syria as well as Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere in the region has been consistent. We oppose terrorism, we oppose extremism, and we come to the support and aid of governments who continue to support extremism and terrorism. We did that in Afghanistan in, in the early part of the century uh, when we were vehemently opposed to the Taliban and Al-Qaeda government. Uh, we came to the support of the Iraqis, both in Erbil and, and in Baghdad, in order to prevent a, an ISIS takeover. Uh, we're, do, we're doing the same in Syria. As far as a... You do not regard any of those forces fighting the Assad government as legitimate opposition forces? There may be. There may be. Uh, legitimate opposition forces in, in Syria, and that is why in 2013, a uh, few weeks after I assumed office as the foreign minister of Iran, I presented a four-point plan, which later became the basis for Resolution 2254 of the Security Council. Those four points are, in order to be realistic and in order to move forward rather than to get bogged down in, a, in an unnecessary debate that, we, that will only prolong the conflict and will only prolong the killing and, uh, and uh, pushing people into homelessness, uh, we need to get real and get to the bottom of it. First, a ceasefire. Uh, I believe we need a ceasefire. We always need a ceasefire. Uh, people put conditions upon ceasefire, but, but it is clear that we all need to engage in, uh, in, in, in efforts to bring about a comprehensive ceasefire, except obviously against those groups that are considered by the Security Council as terrorist organizations, which would include ISIS and, uh, and al-Nusra. Second part of our plan, and of course, with ceasefire comes humanitarian assistance, which is absolutely imperative. The situation is disastrous in Syria, and people from both sides are suffering, and it is important and, to bring about humanitarian assistance. then political, some kind of no, The second part was a national unity government, a government that would include the current government, as well as those opposition people who, who are concerned about the future of Syria and who want to participate in a better future for Syria. The third part of our plan was constitutional reform, so that the powers of the government will not be concentrated in one office, in one institution. Power would be so dispersed that people would feel that they have a part of the stake in the future of Syria, and that would bring everybody in a non-zero-sum situation because usually you will not be able to resolve zero-sum games. Zero-sum games end up producing negative outcomes. So you need to... Uh, and, then, and then elections. And then elections based on that constitution. What is the chance of this happening? Uh, I, I, think it, I think it's the basis of Security Council Resolution 2254. People should stop putting conditionalities for the Syrians. 
we need to allow the Syrians to make that decision. If people believe that the current government is unacceptable to the Syrian people, they should insist that the elections should be free and fair, and then at the, as the outcome of the election, people who are running the government right now will not be re-elected. The point also is that it all, all depends on the constitutional reform. If the constitutional reform removes all the power from, the, from one office, you may not need even be concerned about who is the president because you will have other officers okay, in the government I, I gotta who will ask, be responsible. I've got to ask you about uh, uh, so many other. Yemen, there are reports that Iran is escalating its support for the Houthis there in response to the fact that Saudi Arabia has escalated its support. Well, again, on Yemen, before the war erupted in Yemen, before the senseless Saudi bombing of innocent Yemenis started uh, in, uh, in April 2015, and now we're two years into that war that everybody uh, in Saudi Arabia was hoping to be, uh, to be finished within two weeks. We proposed an end to the conflict. Again, another four-point plan. Ceasefire, humanitarian assistance, Yemeni dialogue, and establishment of a government based on the wish of the Yemeni people. We believe the only way in all these conflicts, we only need to accept in reality one sentence. There is no military solution. Okay, obviously, about... obviously, some of your allies in the region, some U.S. allies in the region, want to win militarily until the last American soldier. You and that's the problem. You understand, you, until the last American soldier. You, uh, you understand television, you've got 30 seconds. The, Iranian, uh, the former Iraqi uh, foreign minister, Hosher Zabari, says Iran now totally dominates Iraq. Uh, its influence is paramount. People say the United States fought the war, but Iran has been the greatest beneficiary. You control I'm that I'm sure country. the person who wrote that New York Times article picked up a sentence from my friend Hosher Zabari's statement. Uh, Iran has been on the side of the Iraqi people uh, from the very beginning, and that is why we have come to the aid of uh, the Kurds, uh, from, uh, from whom Hoshar Zibari come. Uh, when Erbil was being uh, targeted by ISIS, Iran was the first country. As Mr. Barzani has said many times on public television, that he asked many to come to his assistance, and the country that came to his assistance immediately was Iran, had it not been for our assistance and had it not been for the very brave struggle of the Kurdish people, Erbil would have been fallen to ISIS. Had it not been for our assistance and had it not been for the brave struggle of the Iraqis, Baghdad would have been fallen to ISIS. So we came to their assistance. We chose the right side. Unfortunately, our neighbors from the very beginning chose the wrong side. From Saddam Hussein, when they supported Saddam Hussein during his eight years of war with, against Iran, provided him with chemical weapons and everything else in the region and from outside. They made all the wrong choices. They supported ISIS. They supported extremists in Iraq. They supported al-Qaeda-affiliated elements. And that is why they're reaping the fruits of what they themselves saw in, in the beginning of, of the century and before that. So they should not complain about the fact that Iran made all the right decisions, came to the assistance of the people, and now is accepted by the people of Iraq, and they can continue to quote, uh, misquote politicians in order to uh, create uh, misunderstandings. But I, I think that article that you're referring to in the New York Times does not stand any test, any fact test. I, and I don't know how it got 
uh, to be printed well, there. It was, it was flattering uh, toward Iran. Uh, Javed Zarif, always a pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you uh, for doing it. Come back. Next on GPS, we all love being interconnected. My watch talks to my car, which talks to my phone, which connects me to everything. But there's a huge downside, and we'll tell you about it when we come back. Now for our What in the World segment. We live in remarkable times where just about everything around us is connected to the Internet or soon will be. The World Economic Forum, citing research, says that by the early 2020s, the Internet of Things will consist of 50 billion objects using one trillion sensors to collect every imaginable piece of data about us every second of the day. From our cars to our refrigerators, from our doorbells to devices implanted into our bodies, from the shoes on some people's feet to the light bulbs in their lamps. Each one can be constantly sending information back and forth to the supercomputers in our pockets, to each other, and to the cloud. Here's the bad news. Now that all these computerized devices are ubiquitous and interconnected, we've become much more vulnerable, and the dangers of abuse have become considerably greater. This Internet of Things can now shatter our privacy, steal from our wallets, and even threaten our lives. If a country like the United States can't protect its major businesses and infrastructure from hack attacks, how can you protect your Internet-connected fridge from hackers who can then get into your bank account? Look at what happened recently when ransomware going by the name of WannaCry locked up hundreds of thousands of computers around the world. Hospitals, train systems and factories were all crippled by hackers taking advantage of a vulnerability in Microsoft's operating system. Not surprisingly, banks are often the main targets of cyber criminals. Just one example. Back in 2016, cyber thieves, allegedly using a flaw in the computerized systems that banks use to talk with one another, attempted to electronically steal almost $1 billion from the Bangladesh Central Bank. The hackers got away with transferring $81 million out of the bank before being stopped. J.P. Morgan Chase has said it spent $600 million in 2016 on cybersecurity, up from $250 million in 2014. And at a security summit in 2015, Ginny Rometty, the head of IBM, said cybercrime, by definition, is the greatest threat to every profession, every industry, every company in the world. According to one 2014 estimate, the annual global cost of cybercrime was at least $375 billion, and that cost could balloon to $2.1 trillion by 2019. Not surprisingly, cybercrimes also represent a measurable percentage of GDP. In the U.S., it's 0.64%, but in the Netherlands, cybercrime accounts for as much as 1.5% of the GDP. In Germany, it's 1.6%. But back to all of those Internet-connected things. Love the idea of sitting back and relaxing while your self-driving car takes you on your next appointment? Well, back in 2015, independent security researchers working with a Wired magazine reporter for a story remotely hacked the dashboard computer of a Jeep Cherokee from a laptop 10 miles away. Demonstrating a software vulnerability many new cars have, the researchers were able to hijack the braking systems, forcing the Jeep to drive into a ditch. Hold on. It should be noted that Jeep's parent company said there has not been a single real-world incident 
of an unlawful or unauthorized remote hack into any of its vehicles. But the demonstration was able to show that the potential now exists for hackers or terrorists to remotely disable a car's brakes, lock the doors, and steer passengers right off a cliff. The problem is that in our rush to connect everything, we've created a monster that's just waiting to take advantage of a broken line of code or a missing software patch. And the interconnectivity of the web has made it all too easy to inadvertently let cyber criminals into our homes, our cars, and our bank accounts. We need to find some sort of balance between access and security, and until that happens, hackers will be seeking the next opportunity to digitally wreak havoc with our physical world. And we will be back in a moment with Bill Browder, who was once the largest foreign investor in Russia. He is also at the center of the storm over that Russian lawyer who met with Donald Trump Jr. He'll tell us about her and the whole story when we come back. Let's dig into that now infamous Donald Trump Jr. meeting with Russians. He has said that in the meeting, the Russian lawyer Natalia Velniskaya wanted to talk about the Magnitsky Act. That is a 2012 American law that punishes Russians who are seen to be human rights abusers. It freezes their assets and bans them from entering the United States. Two countries, Estonia and the UK, have instituted their own versions of the Magnitsky Law, and other countries are considering similar ones. The laws are named after this man, Sergei Magnitsky. He was a Russian tax lawyer who uncovered what was believed to be the biggest tax fraud in Russian history, $230 million worth. Magnitsky was arrested and later died in prison after being tortured, according to Russia's own Presidential Human Rights Commission. But the Russian government says heart failure killed him and there was no violence. Magnitsky had found the fraud while working for my next guest, William Browder. Browder was once the biggest foreign investor in Russia, but he was then expelled from Russia. Browder has much light to shed on Trump Jr.'s meeting and the Russian players in it. He joins me now. Bill, pleasure to have you on. Good to be here. Um, so what, what I'm interested in is it seems as though that this approach uh, and this meeting was all about uh, repealing or undermining the Magnitsky Act. And what, what, what I want you to explain is we thought that the reason the Russians uh, and the Russian government liked Donald Trump more than Hillary Clinton was he didn't like Clinton. He thought Trump would be better for Russia, softer, maybe in some ways more cooperative. But now we see a specific ask, which is they wanted the end to the Magnitsky Act. And that act, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is unusual in that it specifically targets individuals and not the Russian economy. Well, so, so what we figured out was that, that um, there are probably 10,000 people in Russia that commit very grave human rights abuses and crimes for money. Um, and then they take that money and they keep it in American banks and British banks and Swiss banks. They send their kids to uh, boarding schools. They send their girlfriends to Milan on shopping trips. And we figured that the one thing we could do in the West when they do these terrible crimes is not to let them come to the West, to not let, let them keep their money in the West. And that was the genesis for the Magnitsky Act. It was passed in 2012. And, and we had no idea that we had, it, it was like an exocet missile going right into the heart of what they cared about, which was their money abroad. And Putin went absolutely crazy when the Magnitsky Act was passed. And what he did was, was he then immediately and vindictively retaliated by banning the adoption of, American children, of, of Russian children by American families. 
And um, when, they, when they mentioned that this was about adoption in that meeting, it has nothing to do with adoption. There, 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 were, there were two uh, effectively agents of the Russian government who went to Donald Trump Jr. and said, um, can, can you help us withdraw this act if your father gets elected president? And why does, why does Putin care so much personally, in your view, about this Magnitsky Act? Well, Putin cares personally for two reasons. First, and most importantly, Putin received some of the money from the $230 million crime. We know that. We know that how? We've tracked it because in the, in the Panama Papers, um, we've learned from the Panama Papers, which came out last year, that a, that a man named Sergei Roldugin, who's a famous cellist, um, was, ha, received $2 billion of largesse from the Russian government. And what we learned then from those Panama Papers is the names of the, his companies. And we were able to trace some of the money from the Magnitsky crime, from the crime that Sergei Magnitsky uncovered, going to Sergei Roldugin. And so basically, Putin's nominee or his trustee received money from the Magnitsky crime. And so Putin understands that at some point in time, um, he will be targeted by the Magnitsky sanctions. And as I've said on this show, um, Putin is the richest man in the world. I would estimate he's worth $200 billion. And much, much of that money is held by nominees offshore. And that money will eventually be frozen under the Magnitsky Act if he ever loses his power as president of Russia. And, and do you think more broadly, the issue is it would send a signal to all that, those 10,000 people? Well, that, that, that's the second reason, which is that, that in order for Putin to, go to, to, uh, to do all of the dirty stuff he does, he's got to have his regime, the people working for him, do a lot of terrible crimes. And in the past, he's been able to guarantee everybody impunity. He's, he's saying, do the crimes, don't worry about the morality, we're not, we're not worrying about morality, nothing will happen to you. And you can take your money and put it in the West. And, and, and you, can do, you, you can take your money and put it in the West. Now, all of a sudden, the West, is, and, and it's not just America, it's Britain, it's, it's Estonia, soon to be Canada, are, are going to freeze that money. And so basically it means that he can't guarantee impunity for all the people that work for him, and the whole system kind of gets bogged down by that. And so for Putin, this is his single largest foreign policy priority, to get rid of these sanctions, which sanctions him and the other people around him who do terrible human rights abuses, torture, and murder. And they've been trying in various ways to get this, the, the, these, uh, this Magnitsky Act repealed, both officially and unofficially. They, they've been trying in, e in every possible way to get rid of the Magnitsky Act. They've sent in um, this woman, Natalia Veselnitskaya, has been leading the campaign in the United States to get rid of the Magnitsky Act. It's a hugely resourced effort. Um, they have hired, sent millions of dollars. They've hired lobbyists, lawyers. What, what about the other guy? Uh, uh, Renat Akhmetshin, the other guy who was in the meeting, is, is her chief... Um, Washington operative. He's the one who's identified all the lobbyists, all of the uh, lawyers, all the investigators, etc. And they've had a full court press all over Capitol Hill. Anybody who will listen trying to get rid of the Magnitsky And you're Act. sure they are, in a sense, agents of Russian government? Well, Natalia Veselnitskaya works directly for a man in Moscow, uh, an oligarch, a government oligarch named Pyotr Katsiv. Pyotr Katsiv was the, the previous uh, regional gov or deputy governor of the Moscow region, a region the size of France. He's currently a vice president of Russian Railways, which is the second largest or most important company after a Gazprom state-owned company. He is a, 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 a sort of full-time integral member of the Putin regime. And a billionaire. I, 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 I don't know he personally yeah. is or the people, yeah, yeah. his family members are, but what I can say is that, that um, he's a directly a, a Russian government official. He's paying the bills for Natalia Veselnitskaya and for Renat Akhmetshin. We're going to come back and talk about uh, much more next on GPS when Bill Browder comes back. We will talk about how he battled Putin, how he's won some victories, and what the U.S. should do next in this, in this complicated mess.
And we are back with William Browder talking about the Russia investigation. So, um, Bill, it seems to me we're learning about this Russian lawyer, Veselnitskaya, this guy, Ahmedshin. Um, it seems as though there, was, there has been a, a, a fairly deep Russian effort to influence American elections, laws, uh, institutions for a while now. Well, basically, the Russians are taking advantage of, of, our, of our sort of leniency and our liberalism in the, in the system, and, and that's absolutely true. And, and what's remarkable is, is how many, what I call enablers, there are in Washington that are very happy to just take that money in from the Russians or from whoever. Um, and this is a, a, a big problem, which is which, which, uh, there's supposed to be rules in place, um, uh, the, something called the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which... Um, demands that everybody disclose if they're working for a foreign government. And the Magnitsky case is a, is a prime example where they were trying to, they're, they're trying to influence the, uh, get people to repeal the Magnitsky Act, and they had all these lawyers, not, not, and I'm not talking about Russian lawyers, I'm talking about American lawyers and American lobbyists who were showing up in, in the halls of Congress uh, working on behalf of the Russian government and working on behalf of Natalia Veselnitskaya and Renat Akhmetshin, um, and not saying, that they were foreign agents. And so I actually filed a complaint with the Department of Justice um, to, to, to go after this. There's hearings on Wednesday in Washington at the Senate Judiciary Committee in which I'm testifying about how the rules don't work. Let me ask you that in that case, you know, the, the way that Paul Manafort was paid was seems sim similarly quite clever, which was a pro-Russian party in Ukraine hired him for millions on, upon millions of dollars. Uh, and that, again, seems one of these, these kind of indirect paths by which Russia influences American policy. Well, so, so the money is never being sent from KGB central bank account um, to these guys. They, they, and and that, that this, the, way, the way it works is that Russia enriches a group of people, uh, oligarchs um, around Putin, um, and, and then those oligarchs are, say, are told, make a payment to this person, make a payment to that person. And that's where, that's where this whole Magnitsky thing is. This, there's a guy named Denis Katsiv who is paying for all this stuff here in the United States. Um, that's uh, sa same thing with this whole Manafort stuff. Uh, the Russians never pay from KGB Central. And what do we do? How do we stop this? Well, first of all, we have to wake up that, that, that Russia is a, is a country which is hostile to our interests. This is a country that's trying to destabilize Europe. It's trying to destabilize the world. It's, they're not our friends. Um, and we have to be on guard as we were... Um, during the Cold War, this is not, we, we are in a, a different kind, kind of Cold War, but, but Putin is out to get us. And if we don't um, recognize that, and if we start to just allow them to, to sort of roll all over us, to, to, inf to do fake news, to, to go into Congress, to, do all, to hire different people in, inside the corridors of power, um, they'll get away with it unless we stop them. Can, what, what, do you think that this personal targeting of Russian officials and their money is the most successful way to get at them? Well, it, 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 is, it is objectively and it is subjectively. The fact that Putin has had such an, a, a, a personal emotional reaction and, and has lashed out means if you've ever played the game Battleship, we've got a direct hit. This is it. We found it. We found his Achilles heel. Um, you said they, they, they're going after uh, America. They also seem to be going after you. I was struck a couple of years ago, a few years ago, the president of Russia at the time, or the Russian prime minister at the time, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, made a rather remarkable statement for a head of government. He said, it is a shame that Sergei Magnitsky died and that Bill Browder is running alive and free. Did you take that as some kind of a, a threat? 
I, I took that as a threat, and I take the many other threats that come at me from other different parts of the Russian apparatus as threats. They want to kill me. They want to stop me from doing what I'm doing. I'm doing this for, because my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was murdered by them, and I, I owe it to him, and I owe it to justice to make sure the people get punished. And I, I won't back down, but they want to kill me if they can. And you, do you kind of take precautions? Uh, you have security? Well, I, I don't announce my, my, the precautions I take on, on, um, on free Zakaria GPS, but, but what I will say is that I've written a book called Red Notice where I describe all this stuff, and if you read my book and anything ever happens to me, you'll know exactly who did it. <laughs> Stay safe. Bill Browder, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Next on GPS, what is the country that sent most refugees to America this year? You might be surprised. We'll let you know when we come back. Want a daily dose of Fareed and his team? Now you can get it with Fareed's Global Briefing, the newsletter that gives you the best insight and analysis on global affairs. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed to sign up. From Donald Trump's first full day in office, January 21st through the end of June, roughly 20,000 refugees arrived in the United States. It brings me to my question. From which country did the largest number of refugees enter the U.S. during that period? Syria, Iraq, the Democratic Republic of Congo, or Iran? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. This week's Book of the Week is a documentary airing on HBO, our sister network. A World in Disarray is a powerful, intelligent look at the many forces that are pulling things apart from Syria to North Korea to Donald Trump's America First ideology. Based on Richard Haas's book of the same name, the movie, produced by Vice, gets on the ground in many of the globe's hotspots and then gives us sharp analysis of what it all means. A must-see for those interested in foreign policy. And now for the last look. France is America's first and oldest ally. This week, President Trump traveled to Paris to celebrate Bastille Day, with his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron. The day is, of course, France's national day, a celebration and remembrance of July 14th, 228 years ago, when the angry and hungry French people stormed the notorious Bastille prison in which the king's enemies and ammunition were kept. The storming of the Bastille was the start of the French Revolution that, of course, toppled that country's monarchy. But did you know that today the main key to that prison sits not in France, but in the United States? According to the Mount Vernon Library, the story goes that George Washington's friend, the Marquis de Lafayette, was given the key during the French Revolution. And Lafayette sent the key on a circuitous route to his friend Washington, who threw a party for the key in New York, brought it with him to Philadelphia when the capital moved there, and finally put it in a place of great prominence in his home in Mount Vernon. As the Smithsonian said, for Washington, the Bastille Key came to represent a global surge of liberty. The president thanked Lafayette for the gift and according to a 1790 letter he wrote to the Marquis, sent him back a pair of shoe buckles in return. You can still see the key today in its place of prominence at Washington's home in Mount Vernon. And for just $29.95, you can take home a Bastille Key paperweight. Perhaps President Trump would like to have one for his desk. The correct answer to the GPS challenge question is C, 
17% of the total refugees admitted to the U.S. between January 21st and June 30th, 2017, were from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, followed by Myanmar, Iraq, and then Somalia, according to analysis by the Pew Research Center. 1,779 refugees, just 9% of that total, were from Syria. Violence across the Democratic Republic of Congo has intensified since the country's president refused to step down from power and roughly 1.3 million Congolese have fled their homes this year alone. Overall, 50% of the refugees who entered the U.S. between January 21st and June 30th were Christian, while 38% were Muslim. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week.